If you have your Bible, I encourage you to find your way to Matthew chapter 1, which is page 14, uh, sorry, 1141, 1141 in your Bible. And we'll uh, consider this familiar text, but try to come at it from maybe another angle than what normally is done. Let's pray. Gracious Father, again, we are a people in need of hearing your word. We need to hear, Lord, your understanding, your perspective, to hear your promises once again, reiterated. Help us, Lord, today as we contemplate what it means to think of you as the God who keeps his promises. We pray that you would help us to see the insights into what that means about you and what that does in terms of our relationship to you. We again pray that uh, you might, Lord, Lord, cause all who hear your word today to be pointed to Christ. We pray that we might, in him, uh, be encouraged, that we might find hope in him, that we might find a firm foundation to establish our lives in all that we do. We pray these things in Christ's name. Amen. Reading now in Matthew chapter 1, we'll start with verse 18. Now the birth of Jesus Christ was as follows. When his mother Mary had been betrothed to Joseph, before they came together, she was found to be with child by the Holy Spirit. And Joseph, her husband, being a righteous man, and not wanting to disgrace her, desired to put her away secretly. But when he had considered this, behold, an angel of the Lord appeared to him in a dream, saying, Joseph, son of David, do not be afraid to take Mary as your wife, for that which has been conceived in her is of the Holy Spirit. And she will bear a son, and you shall call his name Jesus, for it is he who will save his people from their sins. Now all this took place, that what was spoken by the Lord through the prophet might be fulfilled, saying, Behold, the virgin shall be with child, and shall bear a son, and they shall call his name Emmanuel, which translated means God with us. And Joseph arose from his sleep, and did as the angel of the Lord commanded him, and took her as his wife, and kept her a virgin until she gave birth to a son, and he called his name Jesus. Then chapter 2, verse 1. Now after Jesus was born in Bethlehem of Judea, in the days of Herod the king, behold, Magi from the east arrived in Jerusalem, saying, Where is he who has been born king of the Jews? For we saw his star in the east, and have come to worship him. And when Herod the king heard it, he was troubled, and all Jerusalem with him. And gathering together all the chief priests and scribes of the people, he began to inquire from them of them where the Christ, or the Messiah, was to be born. And they said to him, In Bethlehem of Judea, for so it has been written by the prophet. And you, Bethlehem, land of Judah, are by no means least among the leaders of Judah. For out of you shall come forth a ruler who will shepherd my people, Israel. In my event series, we are now looking at this question. We're raising and trying to find answers to the question, what if Jesus had not been born? Now, in asking that question, I'm not just trying to go into theoretical speculation. But in asking the question, I'm trying to challenge us to consider the implications of an empty manger. I'm trying to help us consider the fact that the Incarnation is a fundamental, 
doctrine of the Christian faith, without which Christianity crumbles. Some of you may be familiar with the game Jenga. I don't know how many of you have ever played the game, but it's played with little blocks like this. There must be about 50 of them or so. And uh, you take them and you stack them up in a certain configuration. And uh, all of the pieces are pretty much the same size and shape. And the object of the game, of course, is to remove each block. By each turn, everyone gets a turn, and each player removes one at a time. And as the game continues on, obviously you've got a lot less blocks. It becomes a little more unstable, and you're trying to pull out the different blocks without making it fall. And eventually, if you keep playing, it will fall. We played uh, earlier this summer with my family. We were in a park up in Maine, and someone had taken two-by-fours and made their own homemade giant Jenga game. And so we were out there playing outdoors, and all the family were playing. We were pulling one out after the other. We got a ton of them out of there. The thing is just wobbling. And unfortunately, we couldn't finish the game because the wind blew it over. Nobody touched it. It just sort of collapsed at the end. And what I'm trying to help us see is that similarly, at some point, if you pull out of the tower of Christianity, the block called the Incarnation, Christianity as a faith will collapse. It will fall. It will crumble. And so this morning, I want to set forth another line of inquiry. Last week, we looked at the question, what if Jesus had not come? We looked at the fact there would be an ineffective or empty cross, essentially. Today, I want to ask the question, if the manger of Jesus was empty, what impact on the world that we live in today would it be for all of these Old Testament promises and prophecies that were made about the Messiah? What about those? For example, right here in chapter 1 of Matthew, which we just read, there is the prophecy from Isaiah 14, the prediction that there would be one who would come born of a virgin. And then there's the prophecy of Micah chapter 5 too, which I read in chapter 2 of Matthew. He cites and quotes of the fact that the, predicting that the Messiah would be born of all places in Bethlehem of Judah, not in Jerusalem, not in Rome, not in some other significant city in the ancient world, and, the, and what's interesting in that passage, if you noticed it in chapter 2, is that the priests and the, and the scribes, the experts at the time, the religious experts among the Jews, they all agreed. We all know where the Messiah is predicted to be born. It was commonly known, these prophecies. So my question is, if Jesus was never born, and you have all these scores and scores of predictions and prophecies regarding the Messiah, and his birth and his life, what happened if they didn't come true? What does that mean for Christianity? What does that mean? What are the ramifications about God's promises that were spoken through his prophets? If they are not fulfilled, if they did not come true, what then? What does it say, more importantly, about the reputation of God? What does it say about the character of God? Can God accurately predict the future? Can God be trusted when he makes promises? Is the Bible merely a human story compiled of other stories written by other people, myths collected down through the ages, just an inspirational book? Or is it an accurate history inspired by God? And is it unique in giving us an accurate revelation about God? Well, I want to first talk about God, and then I want to sort of comment briefly then about the scriptures later on here in my message this morning. But I want to first of all sort of backtrack and just say 
there's been a movement in the last 15, 20 years among scholars as they've tried to wrestle with this understanding of God and his understanding of the future. And they've come up with a view about the future that it's not something that God knows. They have suggested in this theory, this position called open theism. And they would suggest that because they say that God experiences time like you and I experience time. And because the future does not yet exist, they would say that therefore God does not know what the future holds. I'm not saying that I think this. I'm just saying this is a common view that's now being uh, propagated and uh, sold in books and people are sort of buying into it. Now they would say that although God is aware of various possibilities that could happen, they would say that free will decisions of God's moral creatures like you and me would therefore be unknown to God until those decisions were made. You say, well, why do they come up with this convoluted theory? Well, they would say that the events of tomorrow remain hidden from the mind of God until tomorrow actually arrives. And the reason why? They're trying to preserve human freedom. And we understand that. We understand that there's a need to understand and balance these issues out. They would say, if God knows my choice before I make it, then it would seem as if my choice was not a free choice to be made. This view also attempt, sort of attempts uh, to shield God from the charge of being ca a causal agent or someone who actually brings about evil in the world. And certainly we don't affirm that, and the Scripture doesn't teach that at all. But the question is, if God does not know his own creature's choice before they make them, they would say, well, therefore God cannot be held responsible for the choices they make if those choices are evil. So what are the implications of a view like open theism? Saying God does not know the future. It cannot be known to him. What happens if we adopt this limited view of God's knowledge regarding the future? Is it possible that such a view might result, therefore, in an empty manger? God didn't see all these things are about to take place. There were some curveballs thrown at him. Were there factors beyond the control of God, which caught him by surprise? Would these events have left him unable to do anything or to undo the choices that were made by various individuals? And my answer to you, and I'll say it 15 times if you'd like me to, the answer is no. No, no, and no. I'd like to give several reasons why this view, or I would call it a defective view, an inaccurate view about God, robs God of his glory. Here's my first point. God's deity is inseparably, inseparably linked to his knowledge of the future. And I want to point out a very important passage of Scripture that reinforces this the most clearly in all of Scripture that I can find. Isaiah chapter 41. If, you've got your, if you can make your way to Isaiah, I'd encourage you to follow along this argument here because this is a big issue at the time in which Isaiah was written. Page 863 in your pew Bible, Isaiah chapter 41. Isaiah, through, his prop, through the prophet Isaiah, God is going to make a case against those who claim that other so-called gods would know the future and that somehow it challenges his ability to know the future. And he says, listen, I want you to stand up and make your case here because God says, I don't think anybody can predict the future like I can. Isaiah 41, verse 22. 41, verse 22. Essentially, God says, present your case. Earlier in the text there, he says that. 
And he's speaking now to these false gods. He's challenging them. He says, announce to us what is coming. Declare the things that are going to come afterward, that we may know that you are gods. He's challenging them. Put up the evidence. Let's see it. Predict the future. And of course, no idol or no one is able to accurately predict the future. Only the true and living God can do that. And only God, Yahweh, has the knowledge to, do, to know what is to come, and that sets him apart from all others. Look at chapter 42 of Isaiah. Just skip ahead there. Isaiah 42, verses 8 and 9. He says, I am Yahweh. I am the Lord. That is my name. I will not give my glory to another, nor my praise to graven images. Behold, the former things, have come to pass, now I declare new things. Before they spring forth, I proclaim them to you. God is saying, I am going to predict the future. I'm going to tell you what's going to happen before it happens, before it takes place. If you move to chapter 46, you find another example of what he means by that. Isaiah 46, verses 9 and 10. Here's God giving another account of him defending his knowledge of the future is also defending his unique nature as the only and true God. Verse 9, Isaiah 46. Remember the former things long past, for I am God and there is no other. I am God and there is no one like me, declaring the end from the beginning and from ancient times things which have not been done, saying, My purpose will be established and I will accomplish all my good pleasure. Calling a bird of prey, it's a strange phrase, right? Calling a bird of prey from the east. A man, the man of my purpose from a far country. And the person he's alluding to there is Cyrus, King Cyrus, which is the Persian Empire. Even though this was written during the Babylonian Empire, the Persia didn't even exist as, a national, as an international uh, empire at that time. This was written, uh, again, 150 years before Cyrus even obtained the position of king. And if you don't think that Cyrus is, is alluded to there, if you check chapter 44, verse 28, or chapter 45, verse 1, he calls him by name, Cyrus. He predicts that Cyrus is the one he's going to raise up, who is a pagan king, who is going to accomplish what he wants to do, and that is to return the people of God back to their homeland after being in captivity in Babylon. Continuing now with the last phrase, verse, verse 10 there. Truly I have spoken, truly I will bring it to pass. I have planned it, surely I will do it. And sure enough, he did. It, it did take place. And these passages were written now in the 8th century when Jerusalem was still standing. Jerusalem had not been attacked at the time Isaiah was writing. But it was written in such a way that after everything has collapsed, everything has been destroyed, they would read what Isaiah wrote far in advance and realize God is speaking to them in only the way God can. He's been predicting the future, assuring them he is sovereign, assuring them that he is indisputably accurate in his predictions. And Matthew's point is, as he keeps citing fulfillment of Scripture, which he sort of began to pick up there in chapter 1 of Matthew's Gospel, he mentions the phrase, and all this took place to fulfill what the Lord had spoken by the prophets in verse 22, chapter 1. That's a repeated theme in all of Matthew's gospel. 
as he shows again and again and again how God had predicted, God had prophesied these things, they are fulfilling themselves in Jesus over and over and over again. So that God's knowledge of the future is bearing evidence that only he is the true God. That God, who gives a word that can be trusted. There's no distinction now made between what God planned to do and what man would choose to do. What we understand is when God makes these prophecies, his judgment was accomplished through the Babylonians, that's true. It involved the choices of pagan people, but he made them as part of his instruments to bring about ultimately his plan and accomplish his purposes. So my point here is number one was to show that in the Old Testament there are many, many examples of only God being able to predict the future, and that is therefore part of his divine nature. Here's a second reason why I do not buy into open theism, and again, the alarm and concern of saying what happens if, the, if Jesus was never born, is because open theism, the idea that God doesn't know the future, is erroneous. Why? Because Jesus himself, who was God in human flesh, he predicted and had accurate knowledge of the future. And we're going to look at a couple examples in John's Gospel. So if you find your way to John's Gospel, chapter 13, I want to point out a couple of examples of this. There are many others I could give you, but these are just a few. Jesus predicted future actions of other individuals around him in ways that clearly showed he was not your average human being. But he did it in such a way to show that these individuals were morally accountable. They were responsible for the choices that they made. He's not uh, predicting the fact that they're going to do something and then somehow he's morally responsible for what they chose to do. They're responsible for what they did. John 13, verse 19. Gathered there with all of his disciples in the upper room, celebrating the Passover meal, Jesus said, verse 19, From now on, I am telling you, before it comes to pass, so that when it does occur, you may believe that I am. Now, some of your translations add the word he, that I am he. But that he is there by inference. The translators add it to help make sense. But I think what Jesus said in the literal Greek says that I am. I'm telling you the future so you'll know that I am. That should be an echo of what was alluded to in the Old Testament was God revealing himself as I am. That's a way of claiming to be God, to be deity. So Jesus, I believe, is saying here, he says, I'm claiming to be, I am, I am claiming to be divine. Why? Because I'm going to predict the future as these events unfold regarding my death. I'm going to show you that I know exactly what's going to happen here, even before it happens. Further examples. Verse 21, same chapter, chapter 13. He says, Truly, truly, I say to you that one of you, looking around the table of his disciples, one of you will betray me. In verse 26, he makes clear, among all the confused disciples, they're looking at each other like, what? One of us is going to betray him? They're confused as to who would that be, wanting to know the identity of this person. And Jesus says in verse 26, it is, for the, it is the one for whom I shall dip the morsel and give it to him. So when Jesus had dipped the morsel, he took and gave it to Judas, the son of Simon Iscariot. So Jesus had known all along who was the one who was going to betray him. And if you turn back a few chapters in chapter 6 of John's Gospel, we read there that Jesus knew from the beginning who they were who did not believe. He knew people's hearts. He could tell 
someone who truly believed him versus someone who did not. And he also knew who it was that would betray him, clearly alluding to Judas. It was no surprise to him that that was going to happen. Jesus knew not only what would occur, that he would be betrayed. He knew who was going to betray him. That was clearly identified, Judas. And he knew when that, that betrayal was going to come. It was going to come at that moment, very soon thereafter. So as the unique Son of God, Jesus possessed this divine ability to know in advance the certainty of human choices without removing any kind of accountability that those choices involved in those people. We add to that the fact that Jesus also had knowledge of Peter's threefold denial of Jesus. We read that in Luke 22, where Jesus demonstrated accuracy about Peter's actions. He says, before the rooster crows, that is, it's late at night, and he's saying, okay, before the early hours of the morning when the rooster starts to crow, you will, you will deny me, not once, twice, he'll say, you'll deny me three times. So he identified who was going to do it, how it was going to happen, what kind of sin it was, it was denial, and the timing of it. It was going to happen in just a few short hours away. And despite Jesus' prediction, Peter never said, okay, well, this is Jesus' fault because he's the one that made me do these things. No, Peter confessed his sin, took complete responsibility for what he knew was wrong. Now, I want to take just a moment and just stop and just back away from the larger picture here. I've tried to help you understand why I think open theism is not an accurate understanding of God. But I want us to think now a little bit more about, again, if Jesus had not been born, if the prophecies of Jesus were not true, and you think through of his birth and the location of his birth, which was predicted. It was in Bethlehem of Judah. You think about the ancestral connections that were predicted, about which of those would be true of the Messiah. He's coming from the, from the tribe of Judah, not from others or from the tribe of Benjamin. The, the idea that through all of the different predictions that were come, it narrows it down to an individual. Uh, not only the fact that he was going to be born of a virginal conception, but his divine mission, all of that. And you think of that together and you realize that all the timing of the events that take place in the birth narratives of Jesus as we read them, the historical narratives, none of these things surprised God. It's God who used a Gentile king who put a census in place, making all these people move back to their homeland to be counted. That is the time in which Mary goes into her contractions and gives birth to this child, far, far away from her home in Nazareth. It is also interesting that King Herod's attempts to eradicate Jesus and all the boys born during that certain period of time when he hears that the king of the Jews has been born, he reacts with a sense of paranoia and he seeks to destroy them all. Even that is under the sovereign hand and knowledge of God because the writer of Matthew says that when Jesus and his family fled to Egypt and then returned later after King Herod died, that was all a part of God's plan, predicting again that the Messiah would spend time out of Egypt he would be called. All these twists, all these turns, convoluted events, God sovereignly was governing over them all. And this is why I'm convinced that it's important that we step back, look at the scriptures, and begin to ask ourselves, it is amazing what transpires with the accurate predictions of the future that have come to pass in the person of Jesus Christ. It is absolutely unique. The Bible is not like any other book you will ever find or read. It has so many amazing 
illustrations or examples of this kind of phenomenon of predictions of the future being fulfilled in one person, it is indeed almost incomprehensible. The reason I say that is because Josh McDowell wrote years ago a book called Evidence That Demands a Verdict. And he began to question the fact, he says, if you, he says, in his studies, he realized there are over 300 prophecies and predictions about Jesus Christ contained in the Old Testament that were played out in the New Testament in the record of his life. They were fulfilled in him. And so he said, not just 300, let's just take eight prophecies about one person given years and years before that person even was born. What are the odds of seeing eight different specific prophecies fulfilled in one person? Well, I'm not a mathematical genius, but he got somebody working on that, I guess, about probability, right? Probability is a whole science of how they do that. And he came up with the fact that if you just have eight prophecies coming true about one person, the person of Jesus Christ, he says the odds would be 1 to 10 to the 17th power. Now, if you know anything about mathematical uh, understanding, that means you take a 1 and you add 17 zeros after that 1. And that's the number we're talking about infinitesimally small odds of making that kind of prediction come true in one person, even before the person's born. But then he gives an illustration of how that is an incredibly unbelievable odds to see that happen. He says, imagine taking a silver dollar. Silver dollar, got right here. Imagine taking silver dollars, and if you were to take enough silver dollars in which you were to spread over the state of Texas, they say it's a big state, I think they're serious, right? State of Texas, you spread enough silver dollars to cover it, not just cover it, but two feet deep in silver dollars. Obviously, you would have expended a lot of cash to do that. Okay, now think about that for a minute. Two feet deep, state of Texas. That's a lot of silver dollars. And then you take one silver dollar like this one, and you put a specific mark on it. I've given a red X on this one. And you were to say to a person, you blindfold a person, and you say to him, okay, you are free to put this coin anywhere you want in that state. And he gives the responsibility to hide it somewhere, or not to hide it, but just place it somewhere in that huge geographical area. The odds of someone being able to reach down and pick that up with one drawing is the odds of 1 times 10 to the 17th power. What he's trying to say is that the odds are just not going to happen on a human attempts to try to predict the future. This is God giving information and knowledge that only God would have about the future. We're seeing it fulfilled in the person of Jesus Christ. It indeed tells us a lot about God and the scriptures. Therefore, what are the implications for you and me? If God's predictions did not come true in the person of Christ, then God can no longer be God. Let's start with that point. If our choices somehow throw a wrench into God's plans, then we're going to rob God of his position as the ruler overall. But because God has accurately predicted so many of the events of Jesus' birth, indicating in advance that he knew beforehand what was going to happen, we can rest assured, therefore, that God is sovereign over all and that he rules over all. And God's prophecies, my friend, always come true.
true. His predictions are sure. His promises are reliable. They are trustworthy. No one can do anything to undermine the sure word of God. Not even the most powerful rulers or dictators or kings or potentates or prime ministers of the world, none of them can overthrow the will of God. Not Herod the Great, not Nebuchadnezzar, not Hitler, not Stalin, not Osama bin Laden. The Bible tells us that they are all the servants of God and that their actions fall under the umbrella of His sovereign rule. I'm not saying that He is responsible for what they did. They made their own choices. But it's under the umbrella of His sovereignty. So I would plead with you, don't ignore, and please, by all means, don't somehow overlook the wonderful implications of a manger that is occupied by the one who is promised by God. You see, God does not lie, and his word is completely reliable. He doesn't break his promises, and if the manger was empty, we'd have no basis for any kind of confidence in God. But if God does not know the future, then he cannot be trusted as one who providentially brings things to pass according to his eternal plans. His plans would then be only dreams in God's mind. They would only be desires that are contingent upon our choices and our choosings. But the God who sent his son, born of a woman, is the God who is worthy to be worshipped as the sovereign ruler and Lord of all human history. Let me ask you this question. What do you know about your future? What do you know precisely and accurately about the future at all that you can definitely assure me is going to take place a week from now, a year from now, 20 years from now? How many of us can predict the future? We don't know what the future is. Our knowledge is limited. We're not God, obviously. But God knows all things. He knows our future. God is never caught off guard like we are. So therefore, I'm calling us today to trust God completely. Be at rest, knowing that God is sovereignly in control of your days and my days. As you meditate upon the events of Jesus' birth, that as a baby, he was placed in a feeding trough of all places, where cattle normally consume their grain and their, their food. We can know by that that God ordained those humble circumstances. And no amount of suffering, no amount of hardship, no amount of impoverishment or difficult circumstance that you and I might encounter will pull us under from the firm foundation of God's word and God's rule over everything. So no matter what you're facing, no matter what difficulty you find yourself in, do not think and draw the conclusion, well, somehow God has let things just sort of fly out of control here. It's beyond him. No, it's not. That's one of the lessons of Christ's birth. I wonder how many of you, when you walked into this room today, took a lot of time to think about whether the floor that you're going to walk on is going to hold you as you walked in here. The floor that's holding the seats that you're sitting on, the pews. Do you know there's a whole empty room downstairs below us? But there are these nice I-beams that go across from one side to the other, anchored into this concrete walls. 
And when I came in, I didn't even think twice about the fact that this floor was going to hold me up. It's that kind of confidence that we can have if we're assured of a flooring that is secure. It's that kind of confidence I would like to suggest to you you will not have if you take from the biblical story, the incarnation, and you yank that out of it, Christianity will fall apart. You have no reason to be confident about anything about Jesus or anything that God has said in his promises to you or to me. But if I've tried to demonstrate here to you today, it is God's character. It's like a massive wall, concrete wall, that supports these huge I-beams. His trustworthy character, his sovereign control, provide to us assurance of promises that will never fail. Now, some of you may have come in today and you say, well, I'm a little skeptical about this whole Christianity thing to start with. How can I really be confident that it's truth? I would challenge you to say, read it. Read it for yourself. Read it through the lens of, yes, I've got questions. Yes, I can't see. That doesn't seem to make sense. Well, some things won't make sense, but keep reading it. Keep reading it and look at who Jesus Christ really is. Look at what he said. Look at what he did. Look at his life. And read it from the understanding that what is written there is historical eyewitness accounts of the true and living Son of God. And as you read it, I would hope that in your heart you would submit yourself to one who is greater than you, one who knows you inside and out, one who came to rescue you from the fact that you try, you and I, try to be God. We try to live life. We try to handle whatever comes our way. That's why we want to know the future so we can control our, our situation so that things can work out for us rather than bending our knee, yielding our hearts, surrendering to the God who's sovereign and Lord and King over all. And so my prayer as you celebrate Christ's birth this year, think about the fact that that manger was not empty and therefore we can rejoice in God's sovereign reign. Therefore we can rest in God's sovereign rule and we can rest assured that his sovereign foreknowledge will lead us to the point where we can repent and truly believe Jesus is the Son of God, the Savior of the world. Let's pray. I'd like to ask us to stand for just a moment. We're going to stand as I pray. <clears throat> After I pray, we're going to invite uh, the Stony Brook singers to come, the choral, choral singers to come, and they're going to sing a final song. And then I'd like to also encourage you to remain seated uh, for the postlude and just take a quiet moment to pray and, and reflect in your own heart what God's been speaking to your heart today. Heavenly Father, as we humble ourselves before you today, we confess that we are not God, only you are. We thank you and praise you that you know the future and that your prophecies and your promises are true 100%. And Lord, as we see the demonstrated of the amazing accuracy of your word fulfilled in the person of Jesus Christ, Lord, we once again realize that we are dealing with the true and living God when we read your word. And I pray that you would, imply, Lord, apply to our hearts important lessons for all of us and those of us who are filled with anxiety and fear of the future. For those of us who have a sense of foreboding uh, uh, concern about what lies around the corner that we don't know about, Lord, I pray that you would help us to rest assured in you and your sovereign promises, your sovereign control, to know that you've promised you also that Christ is coming back someday, that there is a hope of his second coming. 
Lord, I pray that as we look and anticipate that, you would help all of us to have hearts prepared for his second coming, that we would be humble before him, repentant, and fully yielded and surrendered to him. And we pray, Lord, that you might be honored and glorified in our lives as we recognize and worship you as the God who controls all things. We pray in Jesus' strong and wonderful name. Amen. You may be seated. <clears throat>